Well, good afternoon to everyone. Certainly is a beautiful Sabbath. It uh, kind of lifts your spirits when you have nice, beautiful weather. Well, last week we went into kind of the history, as it were, of the Worldwide Church of God and some of the ups and downs of it. Uh, some of that history, some of you have lived through. Some of you didn't have a clue unless you'd heard here and there. And even those of us who went through it may not have understood a lot of what was going on when it was going on, but hopefully we're understanding now what has happened. And it's very important that we grasp that these, all these prophecies of the end time have first to do with the church and secondarily the nations of Israel and Judah because the church is the end time uh, Judah and Israel of God. So when we understood that, we began to see the scales come off. But before getting into the text of Zechariah today, I want to do a very brief uh, a review here of the names of these prophets. Not all of them, but I'm going back as far as Nahum. Because there's a pattern here in the names of the prophets themselves, which have a lot to do with the message that each of them brought. God's mind is so incredible that he can name people what he wants them named, knowing what he is going to do with them in the future. And he says, even of us, that those whom he's calling here at the end, uh, he knew ahead of time what he was going to do with them. So God has been working with each and every one of us for a long time and is working with others than us who were called into the church uh, over the last decades because he has a purpose in mind. But the name Nahum means comforter. Now, on the surface of it, you'd say how because it is a burden against Nineveh and of the horror that is coming on them for what they do to Israel. But remember, to whom the message is, the ones that God is working with, are not those Gentile nations who are used as tools to punish Israel, but the message is ultimately to the Israel of God, the church, and later on, the Israel of the millennium. So, Nahum, the word, means comforter. And there are a couple of key verses to look at here. One in verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. So even though this is a heavy burden against the Assyrian and against Nineveh, he points out to you and me, this being an end-time book, the God remembers who trusts him, who are waiting for him to deliver them. And in verse 15, then, it says, <clears throat> Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. So right here in a book about the termination of a nation, if you will, of the Assyrian, which is developing right now on the world scene, uh, Russia, China with them, and other nations in league with them to destroy Israel. Uh, 
you can see that ahead of time in how much prejudice there is now against Christianity or anybody that's white in this nation through the media and other ways. It's a reverse racism, and it's getting stronger and stronger all the time. So you can see ahead of time what is coming when the times of the Gentiles hit, because they're already starting to encroach upon us. But here, he's talking about, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep your solemn feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So our enemies are being destroyed. Uh, some in the church who took over and led it back into the wrong areas have died. And these nations that are coming against Israel ultimately are going to have the same fate. But the name Nahum means comforter. So even in this story of destruction in Nahum, there's comfort for you and me, comfort for the remnant to come. Habakkuk means embrace or embracer. And rather than turn to several verses here, which there are several, uh, Habakkuk saw destruction coming. And yet, what did he do? He had questions. He had he wondered how long is this going to be? How long before God will deliver? We just read in Nahum, he's going to, he'll protect. And Habakkuk understood that, but he had trouble with the time. He wanted it now. We all want delivered now. So I think Habakkuk's struggle and his attitudes uh, are a parallel for us to consider, lest we also get impatient and frustrated and don't endure to the end or whatever, uh, you see the mental and emotional struggle he went through in this book, and yet he wound up embracing God at the end. That was the key. I will embrace God. I will trust in him to take care of me. And God even gave him some hope here. Uh, I will pick this one up in chapter 2, uh, verse 3. Uh, well, verse 2 talks about hurrying, realizing that when this book and these books begin to come to pass, the time is near, and you need to hurry at what you have to do, and that is our spiritual lives. So he may run that reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. So God is telling Habakkuk, yeah, I know you're frustrated, I know you're a little impatient, but there's an appointed time, and God knows what that is, and we don't. We know it's very, very close. We can see the signs. We can read it in the Scriptures, but we don't know exactly. So he says, it is an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. It is going to happen. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So that leaves room there for a little bit of difficult emotional time. It's coming, wait for it, it'll speak, it won't lie, it'll seem slow, but no, it's coming soon, but it seems slow. 
It keeps kind of repeating that thought, uh, realizing our difficulty with our age, our health, our finances, our whatever, the trials, troubles, and difficulties we're going through. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. Anybody who's full of ego, vanity, self-righteousness, thinks he's righteous, at this point is in trouble. Because we need to be poor in spirit and meek and humble and not look upon ourselves as righteous. We can't do that. There is none righteous, really, not one. And if we have a view of ourselves of righteousness, that is the epitome of Laodiceanism. So we cannot have that. We have to compare ourselves to God and realize that compared to Him, we're nothing. How can we claim to be righteous when we compare ourselves with the standard, which is the Father and the Son? Nobody can stand up and say, I'm righteous. Aren't I righteous? No. Depends on who you compare yourself with. Maybe you compare yourself with other people, but Scripture says that's not wise. Because you're looking at the wrong standard. Just because you might assess yourself as better than your neighbor, doesn't mean squat. Because you nor your neighbor come anywhere near the righteousness of God. And therefore... We have to be poor in spirit and recognize that we are, that we don't have anywhere near enough of God's spirit like we need it. So he says, don't be egocentric, don't be vain, don't think you're righteous when really compared to him you have none, but the just shall live by faith. Trust in God, have faith in God, and live by that. Because of yourself, you can do nothing, and you can't save yourself, and you can't pick yourself up on the gro- off the ground at the resurrection. You can do nothing. It's all up to God, because He's the sovereign, and He is Christ is the Savior. Uh, you are not your Savior, and you're not my Savior. Christ is our Savior. That we have to recognize. Some, somebody. Had, I remember a quote, now I don't remember exactly where it came from. Well, my job is to help save you. No, let's not take on Christ's job. His job is to save all of us. Our job is to get ourselves in shape, not try to fix our neighbor. Anyway, he gives us a great deal of comfort here. And finally, Habakkuk just said, I'd just about as soon die seeing what's coming. But although I don't see it happening yet, there in the last three verses, I'll rejoice in God because He is my strength and He'll give me dear feet and make me walk upon high places. So even in Habakkuk, God gives us hope and encouragement. Then we go to Zephaniah, which means the Lord has hid. Now, he's hidden himself from this world, and he also hid himself from the church. Remember all those scriptures that say he turned his face from us, that he spewed us out of his mouth? So he has had his face turned from the church. 
So it says here, he is hid, both from the church and from the world as a whole. Satan is in charge of this earth right now. He rules it. And look at it. Just look at it. What a mess it is. And yet in Zephaniah, he gives us hope that he will not stay hid. That's the beauty of this book, because it talks about also destruction of what's coming, a financial crash, all kinds of trouble. But he says in verse chapter 2, Seek you the Lord, verse 3, all you meek of the earth, which have worked his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness, it may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So again, meekness, uh, not self-righteousness, not vanity, not ego, not a high opinion of ourselves, but meekness. And there's hope to be hid from the trouble. <laughs> then we get down to the end of Zephaniah. And flip ahead to Haggai just a second, which his name meant festive. Now, what's there to be festive about? What's there to sing about? What are we to be excited about? He gives us a clue at the end of Zephaniah, and I think I touched on that, but just in this summary of names, we can see a pattern developing here. Trouble is coming. I'll take care of you. Trouble is coming. Don't worry. Uh, I'll see you through it. And there's an appointed time. Well, here he says in verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. So here's a time of great joy he's speaking of. True happiness, singing and dancing. Now that's in the midst of a lot of very terrible prophecies here about things that are coming. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. So, he tells us in Isaiah 52 and other places that he is going to remove our sins and turn his face and smile upon us. And that's what he's saying here in just a little bit different words. He's taken the judgment away. He made a judgment and then he spewed us out. So he's saying here, there's hope, your judgment is going to be removed, and you can sing and rejoice and dance. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil anymore. Now we're going to get into Zechariah here in just a little bit, and he talks about how he's going to come and dwell with us. So in the midst of you and dwelling with you, or speaking of the same time and frame and event. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion let not your hands be slack. Well, there's going to be a job to do, and we're not to live in fear, because God says he's going to be a wall of fire around us. We'll get to that shortly. So this is leading up to that, and giving us hope, even at the time of the financial crash, the destruction of some of our enemies, and he mentions some of our specific enemies in the book of Zechariah and how they'll be taken care of. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. So he tells us to sing and rejoice. 
And he says he is going to have joy as well. He's finally going to be happy with us. Are you praying with that, about that? That should be part of our prayer, is that we would begin to respond to him in such a way that we please him and that he would have joy in us. He tells us in the New Testament that he uh, desires greatly to give us his kingdom. So his attitude overall is one of blessing and joy and help, and it distresses him to be angry. He doesn't, anger is not his normal way of thinking. People can drive him slowly to anger and wrath, and it took a lot of years in worldwide for us to get God to the point where he finally said, but he did. (laughs) We know that. So he says he will joy and rejoice over you. Zechariah, again, we'll get to shortly, says will be the apple of his eye, the one he's looking at. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly. So what does he tell us? Meekness, uh, righteousness, humility, all those things we've just read about in these four or five books. To have that attitude, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Now, the reproach that the church has suffered by being blown apart has been a burden. There's no question about it. So he's talking to us here and saying, you, you rejoice and I'll rejoice because this is removed and we're going to live in happiness and peace and joy and you're not going to have to fear anymore. That's pretty nice words. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you, and I will save her that halts and gather her that was driven out, so spewed out will be returned. Those that are lame are going to walk, and he'll undo the affliction that we've been going through these last decades, really. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. So here he speaks in the end of Zephaniah about gathering, and then we get into Haggai, and that's what it's about. It's stirring people to come and build a temple and to build Jerusalem. I'll make you a name and a praise among the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes. So he's going to bless in such a way that people are going to see and recognize and take note of. doesn't necessarily mean they're going to repent but they're going to see it. Then Haggai means festive, because we'll come with singing and dancing and joy when, when that remnant, that 10% that is still being faithful to God and have not bowed their knee to Baal, when God stirs them and they see where to go, and remember, they're out there now without the understanding you have. They're out there wondering, where is all this going? What's happening? What's the answer? They're still totally confused, most of them. And when they see God do some things, do some healing, some signs and wonders, and they see his hand in it, he's the foundational stone there in Zechariah, when they see that, they're going to come with joy and singing and laughter 
and dancing because this is going to be an emotional high when they finally understand what God has done and been doing and then is about to do. They're going to come here with excitement that God has finally moved. God has finally done something that, as Habakkuk said, the harvest is finally coming. There it is. So Haggai is a festive time. It's an exciting time building the temple of God. Then we come down to the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. A very fitting title for the book of Zechariah. Yahweh has remembered, or God has remembered, or God has not forgotten. Uh, he remembers all these prophecies. He remembers the content of the books that we just quickly summarized, and all the names of the people that are there in the message they brought. So, he has remembered. And you might kind of keep that name in mind as we go through here and see what he's going to do because the promises he made of turning it around and of protecting and so on in the previous books, he begins to detail how he's going to do it here. Now, he really began that in Haggai, an end of Zephaniah. But Zephaniah just said, everything's going to be all right, be happy. <laughs> then Haggai began to give us an answer of how God's going to build his temple and we can be part of it. And now Zechariah will get into even more detail about how he goes about it. Now he gives a warning at the beginning of it, before he gets into that, because we need an overview uh, things to remember. And I kind of went through that last week, really. Now, you might equate what he says here, as Zechariah would have, to the prophets of old and what happened to them in history. But since it is a very in-time book, we also have to consider our fathers in the church, in the former temple, Worldwide Church of God, and what happened to them. And really, what has happened to us? Let's read it with that standpoint, or from that standpoint. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Eternal to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, and the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying. <coughs> now, he comes through a man who has a background here of people who were uh, a part of what God was doing, and He's in a line of people whom God had used to one degree or another. And I think we'll see that here in the end, as he uses some of those from worldwide to come and do something that has not been done before. He says, The Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say you to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you to me, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Eternal of hosts. So the beginning of his message is a warning. He had been sore displeased with the people that the prophets of old went to because they did not heed. 
And he was sore against Worldwide Church of God because it did not heed. Remember there in Jeremiah, what is it, 28, 9, 30, 31, somewhere right in there. It talks about, turn to me with all your heart and come and find me and I will be found of you. Here he says almost the same words. Turn to me and I will turn to you. So the first thing is, God has not been happy with the past. Let's do something about it. And that's what supposedly we've been doing since we got spewed out. But we need to step it up a little bit maybe, right here as the time is near. How long are you going to live? Do you know? No. David asked God to let him know the number of his days. But God doesn't tell us, does he, for the most part? But we grow old quickly. And sometimes we put things off. We think we have time. We don't know how much time we have. Do, do you want to die today with you as you are? Would you be happy to meet God today at a resurrection and say, I'll stand on my record. Everything's just fine. You're going to have to let me in your kingdom. That just scares me completely. I think each one of us knows that our minds are deceitful and desperately wicked. There is a constant battle in a human being to do what's right and think what's right. And it isn't normal or natural because we live in a world that began with the deception of Satan of all mankind, Adam and Eve, and spread to the rest of mankind. And we are far from being like God. I don't care how righteous you think you are. If you think you're righteous, you don't have a clue of true spirituality. Not a clue. Because compared to God... We are so far from it that there's no question. You know, anybody that went before God, like the Pharisees, and said, I've been doing so good. I do so many good deeds. I'm so kind and so nice to people. Oh, Father, you just, you got to give me a top seat somewhere. That was the problem of the Pharisees. No, we're not like that. The only thing we can pray is have mercy, forgiveness, patience, and grace. Those are four things we need to be praying for. And if we're not praying for those things, that means we have too high an opinion of ourselves. Because we don't think we need that, because we're righteous enough that surely God will have me there. Not necessarily. <laughs> The attitude has to be poor of spirit, meek, and humble. That's what it has to be. And then he might say, okay, the blood of the Lamb covers, and I'll take care of you. But if we are proud and vain and egocentric and self-righteous, he's going to say, I, I don't know that attitude. I don't know you. You know, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. 
So we have to turn to him in meekness and humility. And then he says he will turn to us. And then he says, Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Now, how does that apply to the church? We thought we were doing everything right. We were keeping the Sabbath and the feasts, and we were tithing, and we were helping the widow get to church, and we were cleaning the bathrooms or whatever we were doing. We thought we were doing okay. And we thought that those sermons that we were hearing, we were in compliance with, and we were doing okay. And didn't know that we were blind and naked. Now, God makes that very clear in Revelation 3. You thought this about you, but here's what I thought of you. It was just diametrically opposite. What we thought of ourselves, we thought ourselves were Philadelphians. We thought we were on the way to the kingdom. Our ticket was punched. Everything would be fine. And God said, you don't have a clue. You don't even know that you're naked and blind. I'm going to spit you out and let you see what you are. Now, did we go on with that same attitude? Do we still think we're okay? Or have we learned something, I hope? Are we still learning it, I hope? So, no, we weren't getting the sermons. You know what else? Even the ones that gave the sermons weren't. The priests, the ministers, the prophets. They, too, were in the same attitude. We might be hearing the truth, but we're not responding the way God wants. So, he spewed us out. So he says, turn from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Those of ancient times didn't. Uh, they came and told people what they needed to do, but people didn't do it. In some cases, maybe even the prophets themselves didn't do it. Now, I think in the church, that's very clear to see. We had a message that was out there of peace and love and the way of give instead of get and so on. But we didn't really grasp it in terms of our personal lives. Well, where are those, where's that apostle and where are those ministers? Most of them are dead, the ones that were the main leaders. Almost all dead now. Where are they? Do they live forever? No, they didn't. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do to us according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. We have no complaint. God gave us what we deserved. <coughs> We were self-righteous and still have some of it. What is idolatry? 
is putting anything ahead of God. Your biggest idol, your greatest idol, is yourself. There are other things you might put before God sometimes, but those generally are done in order to please the self. I want to be satisfied. I want to be here. I want to be there. I want to do this. So, God says, live this way. And then we say, well, I, I kind of agree with that, but I want to do this right now. Well, that's putting yourself ahead of God. And we do it in thought, if not action. Every day we put ourselves ahead of God. Well, I ought to pray today. I need to pray. Well, but I've got to go do this. And first thing you know, it can get lost. There's so many things that we can have good intentions to do, but which road is paved with those? So it's an indictment here against what we were. And to one degree or another, still are. So before he gets into the details here of what he remembers and what he's going to do, he reminds us very clearly that there were things we heard that we're not living up to and we need to get with it. Okay? God gives space for repentance, but we're running out. We are running out. You see it happening in the world. The mark of the beast is upon us. They are, via the medical profession, deceiving the whole world, as Revelation 18 says they would do. And it's only a short time now until they're going to start implanting your vax record, probably in your hand, maybe your forehead, who knows. may vary from place to place on earth but you won't be able to buy and sell without it. And they're already starting to round people up, you know that, in Australia, Austria, other places, and put them in internment camps. Alternative News has been telling us that for several years now, that they're going to do it here. Washington State last year passed a law that they could take human bodies and turn them into goo a slippery, slimy substance. Now, whether they're going to bury that, irrigate fields with it, they want the agriculture stopped, so maybe not. Or whether they're just going to dump it in the river and let it go in the ocean, I don't know what they plan on doing with you is goo. But now they have, before their government, a bill to allow people to be gathered up, if they're not vaxxed, and put in camps. And if it's happening in Washington, it'll certainly happen in Oregon. And if it's happening in those liberal states, it'll happen in others, and it will spread. And pretty soon, if you're not vaccinated, unless God protects, you'll be rounded up and put in a camp. And they already have made the laws and the executive orders in Washington that you can be gathered up, and that you can be guillotined or whatever method they choose. And now the movement is toward goo. I guess it's cheaper to make paste out of you and do whatever they want than it is to bury you. I don't know. 
So time is short. Very short. And we only have so much time to be sure that we are in the right attitude, in the right way, doing what we need to be doing, so that God will protect us. So then, he changes this in chapter in verse 7. So, about three months later, and he starts getting into the details of what has happened and what he is going to do. Because Zechariah means... Yahweh remembers. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius, so this is the second year after the seventy years captivity had ended. So there is a period of time after the seventy, and we're going to get down to the seventy here in a minute. Uh, but I think it's important to make that note that it didn't end exactly in seventy years, but there was a period of time after when freedom was allowed and finally they were allowed to go to build the temple. So it took some time, just as I believe the 70 years is over now that we have gone through, and there's some time afterward before these things begin to happen. Now let's see that as we go on down. So second year of Darius came the word of the eternal to Zechariah, the son of Barakai, Barakai, the son of Iddo the prophet. Say, now he's, he's laid some groundwork here in saying that it's the second year of Darius. The 70 is over. Remember, Daniel woke up to the fact of the 70 years and what it meant there in Daniel when he said, oh, I read Jeremiah, and then I understood the 70 years. Now, the book of Daniel was written for the end time and even would be sealed until the end. So Daniel obviously has to do with the end. So the 70 years Daniel mentions in relation to Jeremiah were a prophecy by Jeremiah of the end time and couched in Daniel, which is also a prophecy of the end time. So we already know going into Zechariah here that the 70 years has an application to the church here at the end time. Okay? He's already mentioned it, and he'll mention it again specifically. He says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. Now, the context here is night, darkness. Is the church not still in darkness for the most part? Only a few have begun to see light, and that light is coming from all these scriptures which we understand in a way that we never understood them before. So we're beginning to have some light, but for the most part, the church is still in darkness. They don't know why this all happened. They can't know, okay? When they all consider themselves Philadelphians and everybody else is Laodicean, there is no way they can know what this is talking about. They don't think they were spewed out. That happened to the Laodiceans. That happened to that group and that group and that group and their ministers. That didn't happen to us because we're Philadelphia. And when you have that attitude, you can't understand what's happened to you. You think you're okay. I'm here to tell you Philadelphia has not even showed up yet 
It is a gathering of a few names left in Sardis, Worldwide Church of God, and a lot of Laodiceans who repent, and 10% come to build the church of a few Sardis and the rest of Laodiceans. If you don't understand you are and have been a Laodicean, then you don't have a clue what this is all talking about. If you still think you're a Philadelphian, you need to get on your knees and pray and fast and come to see yourself as God sees you. Because there's not a Philadelphian among us. Not yet. How can we, you and me, understand these scriptures? Because we realize it's talking to us as the ones that got spewed. Not to those guys. You really think Jerry Flurry thinks for a moment he was spewed out? Not a chance. He can't have a clue of what's going on. Not a clue. Because he named his group the Philadelphia Church of God. Therefore, he thinks he's a Philadelphian and no harm can come to him. It's the rest of you out there who are the problem. You know what? We all had to recognize, and I did a long time ago, that I was not part of the solution. I was part of the problem. I was part of the problem in Worldwide. I wasn't what I ought to have been. And I'm still struggling to be what I need to be. A recovering Laodicean, I hope, we're moving in the right direction. So I saw by night, <laughs> still darkness upon the church. Now he is going to bring light when he starts doing some signs and wonders, which we'll get to shortly, or maybe next week. Then some light is going to appear to 10% of what was spewed. And then they will see the light and begin to come and help be part of the solution instead of the problem. So this starts out looking upon that which is still darkened. Okay? And behold a man riding upon a red horse. Now you don't have to go very far into the book of Revelation to understand the significance of these different colored horses. War... A red horse is war in blood, red blood being shed. So here he's talking about some kind of war, some kind of blood being shed. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were their red horses, speckled and white. Red is war, white is famine and pestilence. And speckled is a combination of the above. So we're looking at darkness still on the church and trouble still around. Okay? Keep that in mind as we go on down because this will be explained. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? Now, 
Trees can represent people. It can represent churches. And they were in the bottom. They were down where there should be good food. But these horses are riding there and causing all kinds of trouble. So he says, what are, what are these? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what these are. So now we need to expect that he's about to explain this. Here, Zechariah sees it. He sees trees or churches. And he sees things that ought to be good in the valley. And yet here are these war horses and famine and pestilence horses. What's this all about? The man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Eternal has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So these horses of war, famine and pestilence, God sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So whoever they are, whatever they're doing, God sent them to do it, okay? And they answered the angel of the eternal that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sits still and is at rest. Now they are animals of war and famine and pestilence. And they were sent to do a job, and yet they have walked here and there and said, the world is at rest. Now, consider this. God said in Ezekiel 5 that he would send famine and pestilence and war and captivity on Israel. And when we understand that the Israel of God, the church, is the first one it comes to, then you understand that in a spiritual sense, the church has been destroyed by famine of the word and spiritual disease and by the sword of false doctrine that has been followed and false practice, and it's destroyed people spiritually. They've left the church. They've given up. They didn't endure to the end. And taken captivity by the evangelicals, some of them. Went right back into the world. That'll be explained more in detail later on as we go into this book. But that's what's happened to the church. So when he's talking here, he's talking about here's something that happened at night to the church, but the earth is still at rest. There's this period of time when the church has been destroyed. God sent Satan and symbolically this horse, these horses to do it on a spiritual level. And it's been pretty well taken care of, wouldn't you say? But the earth is still more or less at rest. The nations. Now we have a few little wars going on here and there. I mean, there are quite a few, and there are wars and rumors of wars, but they're not a worldwide conflagration. They're not a worldwide world war. They're brush wars here and there going on, even as we sit here today. People are killing each other in different places on earth, or threatening to. But we're still somewhat at rest, are we not? 
We got threats of World War III starting. We got the armies gathering. We got people rattling their bayonets and talking about it. And it's not far off. So he's, he's talking about a period of time when these horses have accomplished what they were to accomplish in the church. And it's at the end of that time, as we shall see momentarily, when the world has not gone into world war quite yet. So what he's talking about is right now. Then the angel of the eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you have had indignation these 70 years. So here he makes a direct reference to 70 years having to do with the church. And whoever it is is saying, hey, the 70 years are up. Daniel saw, did he not, by reading Jeremiah, that it would be 70 years. And Daniel said, the 70 is up. And then he made a very emotional prayer to God that, hey, the 70 is over. When does the trouble end? Now, I think I've showed you that the 70 years ran from 1947 to 2017 in the fall when a college was established to train ministers to go out and build church houses congregations. And that 70 years ended in the fall of 17. But now it's been a few years since then. And we're saying, how long? Just like Habakkuk did. It didn't happen right after 70. Well, it didn't with Daniel. He was there through the second, third, fourth year at Arias. And it hasn't here. It's still pending. And that is the question that's on the table at the beginning of this book. Is when is this going to happen? I think the 430 years of captivity that God gave us back in this nation ended at the same time. July of 2017. And then Ezekiel said very clearly... It's not going to happen right at the time. It's going to be after that 4.30, but not right at the time. It's come, it's near, it's come, it's near. It won't be the echoing again of the hills. It's, it's here. And the prophecy of 65 years began, I believe, in 1954 with the Bilderberger meeting. And by 2019, after 65 years, we were a nation hiding from each other, socially distancing, hiding behind masks, unable to put together a Scrabble game. A nation totally dysfunctional. Our leadership is dysfunctional. We as a people are dysfunctional. So all these things have happened, and on time. So here we have the same question that I've just been talking about and answering, Coming up right here in the book of Zechariah, which has to do the two witnesses and the end-time remnant who build the temple. And a question is being asked, how long? Just like Habakkuk did. 
You've had indignation for these years. And God has had issues with Worldwide Church of God all the way back for 70 years. And he finally spewed it out, not after 70, but during the 70. And we've been in trouble ever since. So now you and I are saying, how long until you have mercy on Jerusalem and Judah, which Hebrews 12 tells us, along with Galatians 6.16, is the church. And we're not talking about the nation much anymore. And when you get to Haggai and Zechariah, it's talking about the church. Overtures about the nation here and there. But the church. So how long till you have mercy after 70 years of indignation against the church? Now what's the answer? The Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So here you're expressing your frustration over why after 70 years didn't this end? We just went through a fast this past Wednesday saying, please remove the siege from the church. So we had the same question that is being asked right here. How long until the siege is lifted? Until the trouble stops? Until you begin to gather us and we can sing and rejoice before you, as Zephaniah says, will happen. So he gave me good and comfortable words. Well, what were they? What did they amount to? So the angel that communed with me said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. God cares about spiritual Israel. It's the mother of us all, as Paul put it. He's very concerned, and he loves it very, very deeply. And it has troubled him greatly that he had to spew us out, and he had to put us through all this confusion and trials and troubles and problems to get us to straighten up so that he could be happy with us. But he says, I'm jealous with a great jealousy. Well, now what does that mean? It means that we went too much the way of Satan and self. Instead of following him with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, we have been trying to serve two masters, Satan and the world around us, and do our thing when we ought to have been doing only his thing. And he's jealous of that. You're my children. I created you. I formed you. I gave you great purpose. I showed you my truth here at the end. <coughs> and you only followed it half-heartedly. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. Straighten up! I'm jealous of Satan's hold on you. I'm jealous of your selfishness. I want it fixed. And then he says he's going to do something to fix it. Because you and I simply cannot fix it on our own. It is by my spirit, he says, not by the power or the might of man. We can't do it. So we go to him and ask for his spirit and his help so that it can be accomplished by his power. 
Can you overcome on your own? Not much, if any. You have to go to God. Give me strength. Give me power. Give me help. So that I might overcome whatever it is that I need to overcome. That's probably a pretty long list. Help me. I need help. Do you ever see your kids when they were little and they get themselves in a predicament? What do they do? Daddy! Mommy! Help me! I can't fix this myself. I'm in trouble. Come help me. That's the way it happens. Now we need to humble ourselves before God and say, Daddy, come help me. I need your help. You told me what I need to be and I'm not it. Give me help. Give me strength. Give me power. Give me motivation. Give me focus. Fill me with your spirit of love and joy and peace and kindness and patience and on and on. Because that's what I need to be and I'm not. So he's jealous of Satan's hold on us. And we need to break it. He even tells us in Zechariah 3 that Satan would be at our right hand. He's not talking to just one man there. He's talking to all of us. Because Satan is after every one of us, and he knows who we are. If we're following Christ, there's a little bit of light there that Satan doesn't like. That's why he says if we turn to God and are showing the light of God, Satan will flee from us. He doesn't like the light of God. He doesn't like it. So anytime you happen to be in darkness, that makes you susceptible to him. Then he'll come around. You're in darkness? I'll keep you there. I'll help you. I'll I'll make it even darker for you. He's really willing. So see why God is so jealous. He wants our love. Why do husbands get jealous? Why do wives get jealous? Because they want each other's love, and they don't want to see any feeling towards somebody else come into the picture. They're jealous. Because they love, and they want the love of their mate. People get jealous about their children. Don't you mistreat my kids. Now, he goes on then. He says, I have a great jealousy for you. He's speaking to us right here and those who are coming. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Now, we could start somewhere along the trail, as I described last week, with Stan Rader and Joe Tkach and some of their followers. And God was somewhat displeased with Herbert Armstrong. He said, even says that our, our king or our leader, I think it's in Hosea or is it Amos, somewhere right in there, has sinned. So Herbert Armstrong wasn't perfect either. <coughs> he had his own problems. But there were some who came along 
when God was a little displeased, and they made the affliction sore. They led the church, you know, into Zechariah 5, where these two unclean birds took the church and set it on its base back in Babylon. Those two unclean birds had to be Takashas and took it right back to the junk that we came out of. So that sorely displeased God. They helped that affliction. And it may have to do then in a different sense with right here. Because we have people whom God may not have been completely pleased with any of us, but we have people here who have made it worse and are trying to tear down what God has built here via lawsuits, via different ways that they've used. We'll see that here in a minute in detail. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So he says, I'm jealous for you, and I'm going to do something about it, and I'm still going to build Jerusalem. I'm still going to build the temple. And then he talks about it a little later in this book, just as he did in Haggai. So he said, cry yet. Keep crying, and here's some more to say. Thus says Eternal of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Eternal shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So you're t- speaking about a time here when we're in limbo. The church has been destroyed by the red and white and speckled horses. The world is still somewhat at peace. And World War III hasn't started yet. The financial collapse has not quite yet occurred. It's very near, but it hasn't occurred yet. So here we are in this period of time right now. And he promises, this is still going to happen. Okay? I'm still going to choose Jerusalem. It'll be built. Then lifted up my eyes and saw and behold four horns. Now what's a horn? A horn is something that can cause destruction. I am much more wary of a, an animal that has horns than one that doesn't. Because those horns can cause trouble. So horn here can mean those who cause destruction. Those who cause hurt, injury. Horns. And I said to the angel that talked with me, What be these? I see four horns. What are they about? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So these horns are people who've caused trouble. Have you seen an animal, maybe a billy goat or a bull or something like that, who can scatter a flock? Just by waving their head and going around and starting button different animals, and first thing you know, there's panic and everybody's running because here's somebody who's giving us trouble. <clears throat> That's what this is talking about. It's talking about the church, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, spiritual Israel. Because remember, the whole context here that we're getting into 
is about the two witnesses in the remnant church. So these people are affecting that because that's the subject here. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Now, a horn can injure and destroy and hurt. What does a carpenter do? A carpenter builds. A carpenter fixes. A carpenter makes a structure. What is the goal and the purpose here of Haggai and Zechariah? Is it not to build a temple? Is it not to build Jerusalem? Both on a spiritual level and on a physical level. So we're talking about people here who are trying to destroy something that has been built and those who are still trying to build it. Okay? Then said I, what come these to do? So what's the purpose of each here? And he spoke saying, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that man, no man did lift up his head. It's caused trouble. Shame, confusion. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Now you can put that in terms of all worldwide, because there were those who were trying to build, trying to make, Create, create, and then those who came to tear it apart and destroy it, to tear it down. And Raider and Tkach and others of their ilk did that very thing. Now, we come on, that was, that was the former temple, and these prophecies applied in a way to them. The latter temple, then, is the final fulfillment of a better temple, and you still have enemies who are trying to destroy while you have those who are still trying to build. So it has an application right here and now. You have four primary ones trying to destroy. I think I could name them very, fairly easily. And then you're going to have four who fray them and run them off. Spiritually speaking, they're Gentiles. Not part of the church anymore. They've gone back into wrong thinking. And they're here trying to take over this land, trying to destroy what God has used some to build. And they've got to go away. Jeremiah 11 makes it very clear they're going to be sent out to famine and the sword. And die there. Hopefully they repent first. But we've got people right here on this land that this is referring to, and I have no doubt about it, that have got to go. They're enemies. They're trying to destroy what some of us have built. That's what they're trying to do. Well, we got through chapter 1, but there's some good news coming in chapter 2. And this is good news right here, that the 70 years has ended. Now we're in a period of time like Daniel was, like Jeremiah was, until things turn around. 
And God shows very clearly that there's a delay. The, the 70 years, the 430 years, the 65 years are finished, but now there's a delay. It's near, it's coming, it's coming, it's near, it has come, but a little delay. And that's what we're in right now. And it isn't going to be much longer until all this starts coming to pass. Don't be impatient. Don't give up. It's going to happen. Sit on our watch and patiently and in faith trust God to fulfill these promises He's made. And remember always that every promise God makes is a contingency promise. He promises us things because He is God and He can promise anything and He can make it happen. The contingency is you need to do this so that I can do what I said I would do. And he always puts that in there. I will do my part, but you have to do your part or it won't happen. So he puts a certain responsibility back on us because we're imperfect and we aren't God and we have so many lacks and wants and needs and we're so spiritually bankrupt. So we know that we cannot live up to his standard. It doesn't matter how hard you and I try, we cannot be at the standard of Jesus Christ or the Father. As humans, we cannot live up to that. We have to be trying and we have to be growing in that direction. But we'll never make it to perfection in this life. So, God understands that. He knows our frame. He knows how limited we are. He knows how much power Satan can exert upon us. And so, he says, I've made you these promises and you have to perform. And we have to do our very level best with his help to perform. But we might as well understand we're still going to fall short. We're not going to achieve total obedience to God and live His way perfectly on this earth. It's not going to happen. So let's all go home discouraged. No. He has said, you grow and overcome and you'll be part of my kingdom. He didn't say you're going to attain perfection. He says grow, overcome, make progress. And then he said, I know you're not going to make it. No man can do it. And there's where the blood of Christ and his sacrifice, his ability to redeem comes in. His blood is there for forgiveness, for grace, for mercy, for pardon, for patience, for forgiveness. Because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot live good enough to save ourselves, and even if we did, we still couldn't change ourselves. So he's given us hope that this will indeed happen. We do our part, and we'll fall short, but he'll make up the difference. What a God. What a Father. You know, 
We do it with our kids, don't we? Junior says, I want to ride this bike, Dad, but I keep falling over. I can't do it. So what does Dad do? He grabs one of the handlebars and helps hold him so he can ride until he finally gets to the point he can control it himself. And then he's so happy and so overjoyed that he can actually ride this bike. And you know, it's not very long after this. He says, hey, Dad, one hand. But Dad had to help him get there. That's what our Father in Heaven is doing, is helping us get there. Go to Him. Get His help. And we're going to make it.